Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. everyone welcome to the nomad strength show i'm ross hillier your host today i am joined by brady speth founder of ride on optics and i could not be more pumped about this because this show is unveiling some pretty huge news uh, we are bringing on ride on as the very first sponsor of the Nomad Strength Show, and I'm super pumped. Uh, this is going to be a really great thing moving forward. I'm super grateful for Brady and the team and everybody over at Ride On. Austin Legg, who you guys heard probably a handful of weeks ago, is over with them as well. Um, and this is just going to be a really cool thing. So I wanted to bring Brady on to give a little bit more of his story Uh about how he came into the optics world through military background. He worked for Capitol Police for a while, how Ride-On started, and what they're doing to make it the fastest growing optics company going right now. And they make extremely high quality optics, rifle scopes, red dots, uh, binoculars as well. But they also have a killer online learning platform at rideonoptics.com. So there's a lot more to them than just the optics. So I would encourage you guys to go to rideonoptics.com, R-I-T-O-N optics.com. And I wanted to let Brady, like I said, just tell more of the story about how Ride On came to be and hear a bit about him and connect with him, which is, you know, when it came to deciding on sponsorships and things like that, it's it's far more about the people to me rather than the product. And if it's people that I believe in and people that, you know, share the same values as myself and what we're doing at Nomad Strength, that it just became really kind of a no-brainer. And I'm extremely thankful for them. And this is going to be a really cool thing moving forward. Uh, so please go check out rideonoptics.com, R-I-T-O-N optics.com. And uh, I'm really excited for you guys to hear this today because it's going to be pretty cool. They also have a really great podcast, the Ride On podcast. 
which Brady hosts. So it was really nice to be able to talk to him on uh, this podcast today because he's got a sweet podcast studio set up. So it actually sounds like I'm in the studio with him when I'm not. But that's just, you know, when you got the nice stuff, it makes it sound a lot better. So it was fun to get to talk to him. And uh, before we hop into that, if you guys have not done so, please like, rate, review, subscribe, do all of those things for the podcast and uh, make sure you're doing that for whatever platform you're on. And then that way you can get the automatic episodes when they download and uh, just be up to date on everything that's going on. So that's what's going on with this episode. Really excited about it. So here is Brady Speth of Right On Optics. All right, everybody, welcome to the Nomad Strength Show. I'm Ross Hillier, your host. Today, I'm joined by Brady Speth, founder of Wrighton Optics. And uh, Brady, thank you, man, for making the time and hopping on today. Yeah, uh, we are connected through mutual friend uh, and actually works for you now, Austin Leg. And uh, I had Austin, because he lives not too far away from me, had him on the podcast about a month or so ago and came out and uh, used my ice tank that we ice bathed in before we trained That was one yours, day. okay. Yeah, that was mine. That was out I'm of my familiar place. with the pictures. Yeah, yeah, and the complaints afterwards. And the whining. And the, I, w- I wasn't <laughs> yeah. going to say it, but <laughs> and the whining. Uh, so yeah, I was really pumped to be able to get to talk to you. And we got some other uh, things that we'll bring up in a little bit as far as news um, between what we're doing together. And, uh, but I wanted to have you on and give some history of writing and what you're doing with the, with the company and kind of your story within that. Um, wow. I just get carte blanche to just go. You just, I'm turning the wheel to you, man. Take it wherever you want. I love it. (laughs) Um, I'll give the condensed version. Um, I know it's out there. I know people probably heard this before, but, uh, if you're not familiar with right on optics, so me and my wife started the company, geez, this track of time. I'm looking back there trying to find the time. Well, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, something like that now. Um, so I actually, my background, I grew up in Montana, um, kind of right on the western edge of Montana, right there by Salmon. Um, it's not too far away from where you guys are at over in Idaho. Um, yeah. The I grew up in Montana, grew up on a Black Angus cattle ranch, so kind of spent my whole life outside, um, hunting, fishing, kind of just love the outdoors. So my I always kind of joke my my passion is hunting and then my formal training and everything is military law enforcement. So I kind of have like the tactical side, which is more of formal training. And then I have the hunting, which is just life and growing up in the woods and right. just kind of being outdoors. So um, had an opportunity to consult for an optics company when I was out at the Capitol Police as, an, as a federal law enforcement officer and really enjoyed kind of a, a disclaimer. I, I have no background in optical engineering, anything like that, but I, I've used optics in one form or another for three decades plus. So um, I kind of started consulting for an optics company on the interface between the user and the optics. So everything you touch, feel, see how it works, how you use them. Um, there's a lot of really good optical engineers out there, but they not a lot of optical engineers are shooters. Um, and that was something we kind of found out. So started consulting for an optics company on how to kind of make better the interface between the user and the optic. Um, and then that kind of transitioned in, I still had a full-time job as a federal law enforcement officer. Um, that kind of transitioned into, Hey, how about you don't pay me for consulting? How about you just make a few of these ideas that I kind of have? And, and so I kind of, that's how the genesis of Radon started was 
I have an idea for an optic. How about you don't pay me for consulting for you? How about you just make these and let me try them? Um, and then I took that and just started sending optics to all my military buddies, all my hunting buddies, anybody that I knew lived in a shitty place that was too cold or too hot or too humid or anywhere around the <laughs> yeah. world. I was like, hey, man, I know you live in Fairbanks, Alaska. You mind taking this scope out hunting for, for a few months and let me know what you <laughs> right, think? Right. Um, and so I, I reached out to people I hadn't talked to in years. They're like, wait, what are you doing? I'm like, just trust me. I'm going to send it for free. I don't need a credit card. Like, just take it and go shoot and let me know. And first, tell me what you don't like. And then tell me one or two things you do like, because I, I, I'm right. more concerned about what you don't like. Um, right. So we did that for a couple of years um, and finally actually got to a point where we had, hey, we have two viable product lines with our original Mod 3, Mod 5 series, kind of that middle, our middle lines. Um, mm -hmm. And one day I got home after being at the Capitol building for, I think, three days straight during a, a State of the Union address. And I look at my wife and I was like, I'm done. This is asinine. We had two small kids. I hadn't seen my family in like three plus days. And I was like, ah, I can't live this life. We're living in the city, which I am not a city boy by any stretch of the imagination. Right. I was like, let's get the hell out of here. So, And how long ago was this? Like what time frame was this? Where you were um, That was about, I want to say about five years ago when we okay. decided to kind of let's go full time with this. And we, I was from Montana. My wife was from Arizona. So we kind of mm -hmm. picked Arizona to come back to. We had a little more family down here. Um, yeah. So moved back to Arizona about five years ago, started right on like as a true full-time, full-time, like let's go sell some optics and let's start pushing this. Um, started out of our garage as me and my wife going to dealers and selling optics. Um, and awesome. five years fast forward, we're the fastest growing optics company in the world and we're selling in every continent, but Antarctica at this point. So it's been That's a awesome. whirlwind kind of. So, so as, far, as far as the actual um, products and the things that you guys are doing, what is what's the difference in what you guys are doing uh, that is leading to it becoming, you know, as fast growing as it is? Um, a, a few things. One is the simple thing that everybody says they do, but they don't actually do, which is just good customer service. We actually listen to our customers. Um, we have real people that answer the phone and talk to them. Um, on the product side, a, a big part for us is I kind of identified there's a lot of companies out there that put glass and aluminum tubes. There, there's good companies, there's bad companies, there's, we're not, I don't pretend to be the only optics company in the world that makes good stuff. There's a lot of ones out there. Um, for the price point, we are, we make the best glass in the world. Um, that's something that we're really, we really stand behind from our entry level all the way up to our highest end. For that amount of money, you're not going to find a better piece of glass. Um, and how I feel comfortable saying that is we single source all of our glass and our aluminum. So, um, if you go buy one of our competitors, $300 scope, you're getting Chinese glass, Chinese aluminum, wherever. If you buy one of ours, you're getting Japanese HD glass, you're getting Japanese aluminum and it, we final assemble in China for some of the lower end ones to save cost, but you're actually getting the higher quality product to start with, with the raw material. So one of the big ones for us is controlling the raw material. So then we know what's actually going into our products. Yeah. And do you guys do uh, retail or are you straight direct to consumer through web web stuff? Uh, so we're more, we do distribution, we do dealer network. So we're more, we, we do, obviously we have a website, but that's, we don't really sell on there. It's more of an informational type website. Um, gotcha. We do, we, most of our sales and well, the vast majority of our sales are all through dealer networks and distribution. Yeah. The, because uh, I think the, and you had mentioned it, the thing, and this was one of the things that Austin had mentioned to me too, the, for the price of what, 
things are, the quality is like ridiculous. Like you would, you would see some of the prices on like even the entry level ones, like you had mentioned, you're like, wait, how is it, (laughs) you know, like, how is that even a thing? That was a big one for us was, and it's, I'm pretty sure it's written in our front room that like the, how we value your hard earned dollar. So to somebody, a $200 scope might be the equivalent to somebody else's $10,000 scope, right? It depends on, you know, what, what are your finances? What are, we want you to be able to buy the best that you could possibly buy for whatever budget that you may have. Um, and, and you do see it, you feel it. You, when you've moved the turrets, when you look through the glass, you immediately see that clarity, feel the, the tactileness of the, of the turrets and know that there's actually quality in there versus just slapping something together for a price point. Right. So growing up out West, which, I mean, like you said, you grew up, you know, relatively in the same area as me and actually where you grew up, I don't know what town you, I don't think you said what town specifically, but that area is where we have done massive amounts of elk hunting in, in the past outside of salmon and North Fork area. And, uh, that whole area is like, I know it very well. Um, so hunting wise, bringing all that up, what was, what was your game? Did you do everything? Did you float towards one or the other? Do you have a preference? What is, what's your deal there? So I hate saying this because let me go, let me start with Arizona hunting now. (laughs) Arizona hunting is so hard. Um, where we're at in Southern Arizona, coost white-tailed deer, and it's, it's miserable. The thousands of miles you cover to try to find a deer. Right. I say that because growing up in Montana, I grew up in the Bitterroot in the Darby Hamilton area. Um, okay. Growing up in the Bitterroot in, in Western Montana was more, you picked out which deer, or which elk you were going to hunt as, <laughs> as soon as the season started. Um, so I hate to say that, but like we, I, I didn't lean towards one or the other for us. It was substance, uh, you know, it was putting meat in the freezer. Um, that's kind of what it's always been. So it, me and I have two older brothers and then my dad. So we would, the snow would hit the ground. We would have to start putting hay on the, in the fields for the cattle. And literally I joke, but I have photos of like our cow, 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 elk, elk, deer, cow, cow, eating the hay. So we literally, they were right there. So me and my brothers, me being the youngest, I always got the shorter of the stick, but we would, uh, we would literally be like, no, I got dibs on that one. And you knew what bull you were going to hunt opening day because it was there, you know? So I was spoiled to a, a stupid point growing up that I actually, when I joined the military and left Montana, I didn't hunt for a chunk of, of time because I got down to Arizona and I was like, I, the first time I saw a deer, I was like, you want me to shoot that? It looks like my dog. Like, it's tiny. I, could, I was like, no way, man. I'm not hiking three miles to pick that thing up after I shoot it. Like it's tiny. And uh, so I kind of lost hunting a little bit, but um, I love hunting elk. There's nothing like a, hearing a herd of elk bugle or running through the trees or anything like that. So if I had to pick between the two, I, I love elk hunting. Um, but yeah, man, I was so spoiled for opportunity as a kid that I kind of just had the pick of whatever I wanted. Right. That's funny because I don't know if you've had, and I bring it up just because it's cost so many like friendly, I'll say friendly arguments. Uh, if you've had the same conversation with Austin that we and he, he and I had when he was on my show about a month or so ago, uh, he is staunch, uh, mule deer is the hardest game conversation. And, uh, and so like I, he had, he had been on another friend of mine's podcast a little bit before he was on mine on the show. And, uh, like it just stirred like this crazy argument, like no bulls are hard, bull elk's harder, like mule deer's harder. And he like laid it all out. And like, I, I gotta tell you, I wasn't for sure on either camp until I talked to Austin. I'm like, you know what, man? 
that's you make a pretty good case about mule deer being the hardest. And, and most people, like, especially if you're not from out west, just don't understand that at all. You know, the uh, now, oh man, I'm gonna throw my hat in the ring on this one for coos deer. The white tail <laughs> Do down here. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna text Austin as soon as we're done and start an argument with him. The uh, mule deer in Arizona, I will agree with him up north uh, in Montana and Idaho. Mule deer in Arizona are fairly easy to hunt. Yeah. compared to hunting whitetail. Right. Coos deer, they're just small. They call them the ghost of the desert. They're a smaller variant of a whitetail. Um, they just disappear, man. You could be watching one, and it walks behind a bush, and you'll never see it again. It never it's down. gone. <laughs> You're like, did it crawl? Was there a hole? Did they have a tunnel system? Like, <laughs> they just disappear. And it's so hard to find deer down here. Um, had, last year, I shot a little three-by-three, three and I was, like, over the moon about it because I was like... Yeah. This is something I would have passed on a hundred times out of a hundred growing up. And down here, I took a 350 yard shot and I was excited as hell that I got one. So it's such a funny, like, and we've talked about it. Uh, I've talked about it with a bunch of guys that are in the hunting and outdoor community too. Just the, it's silly, but it's like that in every walk of life, just the tribalism of in and infighting that happens, even with, within things that you would think would be like, we're sure we should all be on the same team. Like, you <laughs> yeah. know, we're all hunters, right? So we should all be like celebrating each other. It's like, no, bow hunting over rifle. And then like, even within bow hunting, no, it's tr it's recurve over compound yeah, bows. Yeah. And then it's just like, <laughs> it's like, there's always, there's always got to be some subset of somebody else you're arguing with about right. this whole thing. It just is hilarious it's to me. It's the way it always works. They, I will throw in there since you just brought it up. I, I have never really bow hunted. So I just got into that about a year or so ago. I love it. it it's super addicting. That is a whole new level of like ridiculous with, with yeah. uh, honestly, and we say this all the time with an off the shelf rifle and one of our entry level optics, you can shoot a deer at four or 500 yards. It's fairly easy to do with, you know, a package that costs less than a thousand bucks. Right. Now you go pick up a bow and you got to get within like 60 yards. Like that is a whole new game and, of that and I've never 60 played. is push. I mean, that's like yeah. way farther than most people are comfortable. Yeah, with. exactly. And like, like here, like, oh man, I can't even like, I, I was last hunting season. I was like, even trying to plan them. I was during rifle season, but I was trying to plan like, how would I archery hunt this deer that I'm looking at? And I'm like, mm -hmm. there's nothing. I'm going to hide behind like sagebrush. Like, <laughs> what the hell? How, how would I even get there? You know? So my stomach crawling this is a whole new level of, of me getting into archery. So that's awesome. Have you been on any, uh, in, you, that was recent. You said you just got into that. So have you actually like been out hunting yet? Uh, and, yeah. So I did, um, I did a javelina hunt. That was the first one I did, um, down here in Arizona in January. I got a javelina, um, which was, it's so, archery hunting is so much more, I use the word intimate. It's so much more like you, I, you look at the animal, like there, you hear that breath go out of them when you double lung them. Like it's such a different aspect of hunting so much more primal and so much more intimate that like I was, I, I was actually chasing, um, I had an over the counter deer tag. I was chasing some deer. Um, and I happened up and I also had a javelina tag and I caught a hurt, little herd of javelina. Um, I got a nice one about 30 yards and hit him. And I just remember I shot him and I stopped and I was like, Holy shit. Like I, I've hunted my whole life and I, I haven't had that feeling since I was like a kid of that uh, initial of like, whoa, I'm back to like, this is fun again. This is something like a whole new experience. So yeah, archery definitely has, has gotten me. So, and that keeps you like the, the drive to want to go 
like just be consumed by it and like, okay, this is like everything I want to do now from now on. Well, and, and now literally right here in our parking lot, there's five straw bales and a deer and like <laughs> we, we could shoot 55 Perfect. yards down the side of the building. And so as soon as it stops being 110 degrees in Arizona, we'll, uh, there's five or six of us here that, uh, that does that ever happen? I mean, like you uh, just like get used November, to it. November, December, yeah. <laughs> Christmas day gets yeah. in the nineties. <laughs> if we could, if we could keep it the eighties for Christmas, I'm happy. I'll rub it in and just be like, this morning I woke up and it was nice, crisp 51 and it was just beautiful today. (laughs) There's that, I do miss that because I especially, I hate hunting when it's 80, 90 degrees and you're just sweating your ass off. That's miserable. Um, Christmas, my wife gives me crap all the time down here because she's like, you're just, you're not in the Christmas spirit. I was like, we just swam in the pool yesterday and it's 87 degrees. Like, I can't, I need snow. Like, right. Santa has a sleigh for a reason. Like, yeah, so it's a, it's a different world being down here in Arizona than definitely growing up. Do you do any out-of-state? Do you ever come back up here to do out-of-state hunts or anything like that recently? Um, I did, the last one I did up in Idaho was a bear hunt. I did spring bear in 20, 2020, I guess. Um, and then last year kind of ruined a bunch of hunts for us. Um, so yeah, we we did spring bear up in, uh, up in Alaska or up in Idaho. I mean, um, I love that. That was actually my first experience bear hunting. So nice. that was, uh, that was a whole new adrenaline rush of, of having predators that you're hunting versus prey. Right. So I haven't done, I haven't done a bear hunt, but I've been in some areas where we've seen them around us while we were hunting, which kind of made the whole trip worth it anyways even yeah like, even though we didn't get anything it was just like wow you get within that gives you like a different hair on your neck kind of feeling when you see like a bear or like in our case we saw a pack of wolves like 200 yards from us and that like gives you the like whoa there's like a chill in the air kind of feeling now it reminds you, know? you of the food chain and the hierarchy exactly. of- <laughs> exactly. yeah You're like this gun's not gonna do crap against right. nine wolves <laughs> right <laughs> i have four rounds <laughs> yeah uh, makes you makes you wonder um, honestly, it's funny cause I thought there's this weird kind of evolution of owning a business, especially in this industry. When I first started right on, I was like, all right, this is awesome. I, I own an optics company. I'm in the shooting industry. Like I'm going to go out and I would, I would go out three times a week. I was like, hell yeah, this is awesome. This is what, this is why I did this. Like, and then all of a sudden we started getting more successful and growing and yep. and there's this graph of of right on success and Brady's hunting time and <laughs> and they are definitely diverging in completely opposite directions um so yeah it was uh in the beginning it was awesome I shot all the time I hunt all the time and then we're now I'm trying to just my son's getting a little older and I'm trying to make it a priority of like all right I, I got to get out again I got to do some stuff so yeah I, I, I haven't been to Montana hunting in a long time I need to get back up there and hunt and try to just schedule some more of those things so well, and it's the, I mean, and I imagine, because for myself too, running the running the business that I do, like it's the, it's a good problem to have. It's like the, the, the blessing and a curse at once to like be more successful, but then like it does pull away from things. Right. Like, cause at the beginning you're like, yeah, I own an office company. This is all work for me. I'm testing all of these things. Like this is, <laughs> yeah. this is my job. And then it's like, well, this is a big enough deal now where I have to be doing some other like big picture type things to run a company, you know, when you've got employees and all the stuff that I, you know, I imagine you guys have, you know, a thousand things that you weren't doing when you started, you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and now I don't get to be like the chief product tester or the product development guy. Or I don't, all those titles got taken away from me and I'm like oh man I don't want to go meet with the accountant that's horrible I want to go shoot like damn it uh, I, I uh 
I had a business coach who I, who I also had on the show probably about a month ago, and I worked with him a little ways ago, and he has a really, and it's like made me think about how I want to structure all my stuff moving forward. So I'm always interested to hear what other entrepreneurs think about the concept. But he has always said, when I start a new business, my goal is to make myself obsolete within the business within three to five years. Like have it be to the point where the business doesn't need me to like continue to grow and survive yet. And I'm like, that's probably a lot different of an approach than what most people get into business like wanting to, their role to be. You know what I mean? Like they're getting, they're going to grind for, I'm going to do, I'm just going to build this as long as it takes. And I'm going to run this thing for 20 years. And his old goal is like, I don't want to, I mean, it's like that. I don't want to be involved. It's just like, I don't want to have to be involved if I, if I do this right. And it grows at a, at a good clip, you know? The, uh, no, I, and I love his attitude because we've, I've had that conversation with some other business. Like I did a podcast a while back about just talking about business and stuff. And we were, when you start a company and you look at that company flowchart, your name is in every box, right? You're the janitor, you're the the yes. shipping and receiving, you're everything, right? And uh, and I still remember helping like literally the first shipment of scopes I got. I helped like unpack them and put them in my garage and carry them up the driveway one by one and all this shit. And I was like, man, you're everything. You're A to Z within a company in the beginning. And you yep. take and and I had um, my brother is is has like a master's in business and he's a business consultant. He does stuff like that. And I remember him telling me he was like. Take that flowchart, put your name in every box. And as soon as you can find somebody that can do that job better than you can, take your name out of that box and put them in it. And yeah. that's always, that's kind of the philosophy that I've run my company with is uh, if as soon as I can find somebody that does something better than me, then I don't need to be doing that job anymore because now I'm actually hurting my company versus helping it. So I would love, I mean, I love that attitude. Anytime you can find somebody and put in that box, if if this company can run itself and I can sit back and know that I trust my people and everybody's kicking ass and taking names. That's that's the ultimate goal, goal as a business owner. Well, and I've talked to a couple of other business owners that they've always looked at it like, well, I can't afford to hire somebody yet. I'm like, well, can you afford to not hire somebody yet? Like how much more time and energy or of like your own time are you wasting by doing these jobs? Like you said, that you don't need to do that. Somebody else could do better. That like that's going to actually save you time and make you more money in the long run, even though you're paying somebody like you would think that'd be an expense, but actually it's totally different than that. Yeah. Like, like you, you realize that that expense yeah. for that employee is, you know, minuscule when it comes to what they're actually putting in and what they can do just, just simply based on, I mean, I look around here, I'm sitting in here in the studio, got producer Chris back there, not, not paying attention. No, he, uh, and, uh, I, I look at, you know, he's a great example of this. Like, I sit in this chair and I talk in the mic and I put the headphones on. I don't know how any of this shit works in here. Like, <laughs> but I don't need to, right? And that's the right. beauty of it is he's awesome at this. So get somebody in here that knows what they're doing and yes. let them do it and get out of their way. I think that that's the other side of that is the, in a business, hire somebody that can do it better than you and then leave them alone. Let yeah, them let do, them it. do it. it. That's the other side that I think people forget is they, they want to micromanage. They want to, it's hard, man. I, I look at a company, it, it's your, it's a baby. It's this tiny little thing that you take from nothing and grow it. And you know, it's that bird leaving the nest and it, you gotta, it's hard to give that up. It's hard to be like, Oh, what's happening over there. And I have no, it's just doing it. And I don't have anything to do with it. That's a weird feeling as a, as a business owner, but our success has come so rapidly because of me and my wife, hey, if this is, we're hired you to do this. This is the big boy world. I expect you to do it. Yeah. And I'm going to get the hell out of your way. Yeah. Well, and the other thing too is like, and I think, I think people would have that don't 
And it's actually, let me rephrase. If people have problems like with the trust issues of the people that they hire, that's not the people that they hire's fault. That's your fault for hiring the people that you don't trust. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <You> know? <laughs> yeah. It has nothing to do with the people. It has nothing to do with those people. Like you should have hired better people, you know? And, or and, look yourself in the mirror and, and, and yeah. question why. Cause I think that's a big yeah. one is, is well, why is it that you don't trust that person? Are you so scared that they're going to do it? I, and I hate saying this, but I think a lot of people are scared they're going to do it better than them. I we see that a lot when I talk to a lot of other business owners and stuff. They're just, I think sometimes they get scared that they're going to become an obsolete part of that business. And you're like, right? Like your friend said, that's the goal, right? <laughs> the goal that should exactly. be the goal. If you want a one man shop, then keep it as a one man shop. You know, yeah. if not, then get the hell out of the way. The other line he always said that uh, I loved was, and this had to do with like the how you go about hiring somebody and how you know what things to hire people for. And he always said, whatever you procrastinate, delegate. And in terms of just like, you know, daily tasks and stuff, like there's something you hate doing that you just always put off. He's like, that's the first thing you should hire somebody to do because that's just going to take a drain off your energy that like has been there for far too long, you know? So for a chronic procrastinator, I should just hire... Everyone. <laughs> yeah. everyone no, that is hard for me all the time. <laughs> Man, there's so much stuff that like you're like, oh, hate right. doing that. <laughs> and yeah, if you could give, you could offload that to where. And, and I even I just had a, a a meeting with one of our employees just talking about that. Like, I see myself now as is that find a talent and find the job and match those two up. And if what you're doing is not, you're not happy, you're not having fun, you're not going to be productive, you're not, you're gonna piss people off. You're going to come off as, as somebody that's angry, somebody that's not, you know, getting fulfilled. That's not that employee's problem. That's right. me as a, as an owner of a company or any one of my management team, that's their problem because they put the wrong person around, you know, around peg in a square hole. That's the problem. Most employees are pretty good people, pretty good. If you do the right vetting and everything like that, yeah, you're just it's if they're not successful, it's because you put them in the wrong role or you didn't give them the resources or the assets to, to attain what you wanted them to attain. And uh, and I just had that conversation with, with one of our employees. I was like, hey, man, if you're unhappy, tell me what it is that makes you happy and let's yeah. tailor fit your role, because I know you as a person can kill it. If I'm asking you to do something that you're not good at or you're uncomfortable doing, then let me get somebody else that loves doing that and find the role for you. So, yeah. And, and to bring it back to one of the reasons you said you guys have had so much growth going back to the customer service thing, you know, the customer service standpoint actually begins with the employees. Like if they're good and happy at what they do, they're going to be much more pleasant people to talk to when you're actually, because they're your customer facing people, you know, like that's, that's who's representing the company, like to the customers. And so if, like you take care of them, they take care of your people, you know, one of, uh, one of our main customer service guys, he's he's a former recon marine and he's a giant pain in the ass. <laughs> but he literally, and I'll tell him that to his face too. He, uh, he is also my office foosball partner. So I got to, I got to be nice to him because we're, we're on a pretty hot winning streak. Um, but no, he, but he loves guns. He loves optics. He loves, lo like yeah. I, I would probably have to kick him out of here every night. Like that kind of uh, passion for it. And people calling just to talk to him. Like they'll call the customer service line and wait on hold so they can talk to Spencer. And, and like, because he loves doing it, he's, he's, 
a giant pain in the ass, but he loves talking about it. And we've enabled him that, hey, if you need to talk to for an hour to this dude, talk for an hour. Don't be the company that rushes people off the phone as fast as you can. Right. And it's not all about optics. They'll call in and be like, hey, man, what do you think about a 6.5 PRC? And he'll talk to him for 20 minutes about it. And it had <laughs> never even once mentioned an optic. But they trust. And if they trust him to call in and ask questions like that, right. then now we have him for a customer for life. And that's all. That's what that attitude and that contagiousness and, and being there and just talking to people. Don't rush them off the phone. Don't have a clock going about how quick we need to get people in and out. Take the time and just be a person. And solve the problem. Like, and that's the, you know, that's the main issue. That's, that's what customer service is like. Solve the problem. You know, I get strung along for half a day and nobody answers my questions. Like, I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. And it's just been like the most frustrating thing in the world. But like you said, customer service, that should be the most obvious thing in the world. So when there's companies that actually do it and they're good at it, it's like, wow, yeah, this is what it's supposed to be like. <laughs> you should be more of, of like, it shouldn't be the the way that it is. You're actually, you're astonished when you get good customer service. We should be pissed off when we get bad customer service versus that seems to be the norm. And then when we get good customer service, like, holy shit, that was easy. It should, it should be like that, you know? And, and touching on that topic, and I kind of said the enable part, every customer service experience that I've ever had with good companies that you don't have to ask for managers, you don't have to ask for supervisors because they enable that frontline person to solve the problem. And I think either through training or through assets or through whatever it might be that they need to solve the problem. And that's a big one that we do is you don't need to call in and ask for a supervisor. The guy that you get or girl that you get can answer and solve your problem. And we give them the power and enable them to fix the issue whatever it may be. And so you're not pissed off. You're not, you're like, oh, cool. I had an issue. It's fixed. And I, I had to talk to one person and then five minutes, perfect. You know, and that, that's a big one is in the enablement. Yeah, for sure. I want to, uh, I want to switch gears for a bit and I want to go back to a little bit more of your uh, stuff because I was told to ask you that you've got some good stories of your days in DC doing uh, <laughs> Capitol Police stuff, which like, and th and it probably, you've been, you said about five years now that since you've been out of that. Uh, yeah, a little bit more actually now. Yep. Okay. So I'm, I'm, I don't want to lead this down a certain direction because I want it to just be what you give me here. But right now you hear Capitol Police, that brings up something very specific for a lot of people when you think about it right now. And so like, what was your experience with that whole process, like good and bad, was there, I mean, I mean, I don't even know the first thing about like the actual duties of what that's like. Um, so yeah, let me, I'll, I'll kind of touch on the Capitol Police as a whole. So um, everybody knows the Secret Service, that's yep. protection and, and physical and dignitary protection for the executive branch. The Capitol Police does the exact same thing, but for the legislative branch. So okay. Capitol Complex, the Capitol Building, Libraries of Congress, all the, uh, the office buildings on Capitol Hill, um, and then members of Congress and leadership positions have details, not as extensive as like the president, but they have protection details. Um, and that all falls under the Capitol Police. So before November, what was that? When was that? January 6th or whatever, that date. Before that, which is was my time in the Capitol Police, we had this perfect, in my opinion, this perfect thing of no one knew who we were. Yes. And to me, that is that means we did our job, right? Right. If you're not in the news, if you're not causing issues, if you're not having problems and no one knows who you are, you're doing a really good job as a law enforcement officer, as a federal agency. Um, 
after this January 6th whole debacle, whatever, and I, we, I don't, we won't go political and go into that too deep, but um, now all of a sudden the Capitol Police is in the spotlight. Everybody knows who they are. Everybody thinks they know what they're supposed to do and what they should have done and this and that. And, and so it's definitely thrust an agency into the spotlight that for a long, long time was never in the spotlight. And we loved it that way because that meant we were doing our jobs. We weren't getting in shootings. We were protecting our dignitaries. We were doing everything we needed to do. And we stayed out of the spotlight. Um, and that's the beauty of it is most people, when I said Capitol Police, they're like, DC Metro or no, perfect. You don't know who I am? Awesome. <laughs> exactly. no, I don't need you to know who I am, you know? So, um, so yeah, unfortunately I still have a lot of friends that are there and have to deal with some of the fallout from, um, which has been a lot of political fallout. It's less their day-to-day job and more the politicizing of the events that happened around that. Um, I wasn't there, so I don't really have a firsthand account of, of to speak on, but that's kind of the backstory of my, with the Capitol Police is I love the fact that it was an unknown agency and we just got to do our jobs, which is right. kind of why I picked it in the first place. Yeah, nobody had to know who you were. And it was good that they didn't, like you said. That's so, a win for a federal agency if, if people don't know who you are. <laughs> exactly. Do you have any like kind of crazy or fun stories of your time there that would have been like things you didn't expect to actually go down in those type of situations or anything like that? Um, not, too, not too crazy that I can get into. Um, Again, the, that's good, right? Yeah, right. Um, I was still fairly new, so I, I was on I was on the Capitol detail. So I actually worked in the physical Capitol building, um, and then did did some dignitary stuff. Did some. I, I was on a team that did with foreign dignitaries. So nothing crazy. I, I got a really cool opportunity as a, as a young federal officer to. I met uh, tons of heads of states. I met. Um, I you know I was right standing next to the president on, on several occasions. I got to do a lot of things with foreign dignitaries. So got to, got to meet and hang out with like the prime minister of Scotland and the oh, nice. king of Jordan and, you know, uh, prime minister of Israel and just a ton of, I got to meet and, and work with a ton of overseas guys. So when, when a dignitary comes to the U S they obviously bring their, their protection detail, but they don't get to actually work as their true protection detail in the U S we, we provide that when they're on U S soil. So, I honestly, I got to, it, the heads of states were really cool to meet, but more was meeting the people that actually did my job, but for other countries. So that was kind of nothing crazy, but that was really my cool takeaway from that is I have friends all over the world now from different dig- dignitary protection details that I got to work with. That's pretty cool. Is the, I mean, like you said, fairly similar in occupation, but I imagine just the the day-to-day things that they go through are probably quite a bit different depending on where they're from and probably yeah. like in some areas where they're like, they're probably on hot action a lot. And a lot, uh, the, the conversations we always had that always cracked me up were just even like the different rules of engagement of like, what, what, you can't do that. No, we can't just shoot into a crowd because we're pissed. You know, like the, the different conversations you would have were, were fairly entertaining because of just rules of engagement and, and the standards that, that, you know, our law enforcement's held to. So that was, that was actually pretty entertaining. I, that's that, you see, that's the stuff you don't even think about, like until somebody from somewhere else tells you like, what is, why is this even a thing here? Like, like yeah. the rules of engagement thing, which that's its own, like just rules of engagement is its own conversation. That's got its pros and cons to it right. as well. I've got, I mean, you, you, I think you said you were, you were former military before then also, yeah, and I've, I've, I mean, we have probably lots of friends that were have a lot of issues with how that goes down when you're in places, and yeah. you have to f- follow this chain of events and all this kind of stuff, and that's like 
no, we don't, we need to be doing stuff now kind of a situation. Well, and that's, uh, and I always disclaimer, I was in the Air Force, so I, I was not boots on the ground. I was, I was in the, the comfiness of the Air Force. I did air traffic control and I didn't, I wasn't kicking indoors and shooting people. So I always throw that disclaimer out there. Um, the, but yeah, it is crazy. There is a completely different set when you're guarding a king in a Middle Eastern country, right? The rules that yeah. you abide by and, and yeah. you, you're pretty much get to do whatever the hell you want, you know? And so there was a lot of that was actually teaching some of these guys of like, eh, no, we can't do this. We can't do that. No, you don't need to just shut down all Washington DC because you feel like it, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. Right. So there was a, it was kind of a fun kind of learning curve teaching some of those guys. What, uh, for those, what were some of the things that they had the hardest time? Because like, now I'm super fascinated by this. So like, what were, what were some of the things that they had the hardest time like wrapping their heads around when it came to how you do things versus how they were doing things? A lot of it was just that as the, as a police officer, we're still, you know, even a federal law enforcement officer, you still are bound by, there's business going on. There's society running right there next to you. Like things are still happening. And even though we may be here guarding a king or a prime minister or something like they're still our American business happening in the same building right next door um, where that isn't the case. So that, that was probably the biggest one is if, if you take a king, if you take some prime minister, some of these other countries, like when they go do something like one, some of these countries are the size of Rhode Island, you know, they're small countries. So you shut down the whole country, right? Like if for us, it's like, no, you have to. And for the, the capital, I think they've taken the fence down since the January 6th thing, but the Capitol is the people's building. People can come and go and have business and meet with their members of Congress. And so even over the White House has a fence around it and people aren't allowed, right? Like in the Capitol, you're protecting somebody or protecting a building, but then average citizens get to come to the Capitol yeah. and take part in democracy. So right. that was kind of a, a, a hard thing for people to understand. And that was probably the biggest one was just letting them understand that, no, like you can't land your helicopter right there. You can't drive your car wherever you want. You can't, you know, like business is still happening. We still have a, a country to run. And just because it's you're here doesn't mean we're shutting everything down. I actually just saw, it might've been even this morning, there is a, there's some sort of rally that's, and I don't know the date of when it's supposed to take place, but it's something like a, it's, it's called like justice for J6 or something like that. And it's just this like rally that's supposed to take place in DC, but they're actually, I saw the, the article I'd mentioned, they're talking about putting up the fence again around it, just in preparation for this rally, like that, which there's no evidence that it's going to be anything other than just a bunch of people standing around, you know, like, but now. Which happens every day in, in Washington. Exactly. That's what I'll, I'll throw at you. That was, that's one of the most jaded things I took away from the Capitol Police is protests in America. Mm. Um, People think they're just some spontaneous, everybody's going to show up and they're so maybe a tiny, tiny percentage is that the vast majority of protests, especially at the Capitol and in D.C., they're scheduled months in advance. They have to actually go through our public affairs office at the Capitol Police to get a permit to protest. And then they say, OK, you get this section of the lawn. It's almost like we give them a map and we circle it and you get to be here. And then so we would literally be like, OK, so the, you know, the, this sect is over here, this sect is over here, we'll keep them separated, you're over there. And we knew kind of where everybody was at on a given time when protests were happening. Um, and then the big one that I don't think people really understand is we would deal with the same people that are paid protesters. That's something that I think people don't really understand is I would, we would see a guy one day and he would be there protesting 
for abortion. And the next day he would be, you know, protesting against abortion with another group. And you're like, what the hell is going on? You and you here. realize <laughs> you talk to the guy and he's from Illinois and he got paid two grand from a Craigslist ad to fly into DC and protest for a week. And, and so it, it's the weirdest thing that would happen. And then there's the attorney for the group would have to wear a certain color hat and we would know who the attorney is. So if we were going to arrest people, he would, we'd had to get them over and get the attorney involved. And so it's just, it's one big kind of fake. And like I said, there's some yeah. true protests that do happen, but the majority right. of protests you see on, on, on the news channels are staged, pre-planned, we know who the players are. We would know who the the bad apples are in the group before the group showed up. Like there was a lot that went into like before somebody just shows up and protests at the Capitol. Right. It's just a giant photo op basically. Yeah, pretty much. And and the guys would be assholes too. That's one, one story I would tell you is like we, when you would arrest somebody, you would take them and they would be assholes if the cameras were around and they would sure. call you a pig. They would call you whatever, depending on which side it was on, you know, they would, they would be assholes to us. And as soon as you get them away from the camera, They'd be like, hey, man, sorry about that, dude. You know, you know, it's just part of the gig. <laughs> My ID's in my back pocket. Sorry about that, dude. And they'd be super cool. And you're like, you were just, you were an asshole 30 seconds ago. Hey, man, yeah, it's just part of the game, part of the gig. And at first when I was a new officer, I was like, what in the hell is happening? This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And then you would actually start seeing the same people. And that was a weird thing for me is like you would see a protest and you'd be like, hey, Steve, what are you protesting this week? And you would start to know these guys. And it was funny. It was almost kind of a game for a lot of the outside guys that worked outside the Capitol of like, you would see the same people over and over. Um, and DC, I think at the time had like a three strike policy. So literally it was like a, you paid a fine and you got sent on your way. And so they would go home and come back a month later and protest something else and get paid. And like, it was just this big, it's a stupid game. And, and that kind of jaded me big time for, for protests and politics and stuff like that. Well, and especially with the last, I mean, two years specifically with how many of them have been in the news and the media and all that kind of stuff. Like hearing that information, like I'm already like, none of them are real. Like not, how, not, none of this. Is, well, that's the hard know? part is it, you know? when I was looking at the January 6th stuff, like I said, I wasn't there. I, I don't have firsthand accounts, but it does make me wonder from my past experience of like how much of that was real? How much were were some of those people being paid as instigators from one side or the other? I, I don't know. You probably could have recognized half of them if you like spent time looking at the crowd, <laughs> right? And, and I think that's the weird part is that I just it, there's a shadow of a doubt now of like, is any of it real, or did those people just get paid to come cause shit, or what was it? You know, so that's the sad part as a true protest now, especially in my mind, any true protest or anything like that. I'm like. Mm, uh, do you guys really even know what cause you're here for? You know, because half of them don't, you know, they just get a sign, they look at it and they're like, oh, yeah. And they just start, you know, <laughs> start chanting and they don't even know what the hell they're protesting. Well, and then the other fact that like you said, how much pre-planning goes into like being there, you know, quote unquote, legally anyways. Yeah. Like, like half of the illusion is like all the, you know, we have 10,000 people that just showed up on this morning and we, you know, like we're all here. And it's like, well, like you said, they, we had this on the calendar for six months now. So like we knew everybody was going to. There's a reason why it's cordoned off and the, there was no parking on this side of the street and they had a police escort from, you know four blocks back all the way to here because that's where we let you guys meet and then you walked up here. So yeah, a lot of that's pre-planned and, and definitely kind of jade you a little bit when it comes to that. It, it sucks because you want good or bad. Our country is set up to where, Hey, if you want to protest, go protest. Absolutely. Right. Good or bad. And now in my mind, I'm like, 
kind of ruins that for me. Like, yeah. is any of it real, you know? So it's, it's kind of a weird situation to look at. I've become increasingly, and maybe, maybe cynical is not the right word, but maybe it is. Like just in the last couple of years, like anytime I see anything, regardless of if it's protests or any anything that comes from any outlet, I'm like, okay, but but really, what am I looking at here? You know, what I mean? like there's uh, there needs to be a couple levels of questions to to make sure this even makes a remote amount of sense. And which is like, good because I think we're too we're way too to use the term sheepish. You know, a, a, a herd of sheep or flock of sheep or whatever it's called. Um, we're way to that direction of like information's fed and people just accept it, you know, and, and I love a healthy debate. Absolutely. I'll talk to anybody about anything. Um, we actually just, we posted a podcast on the right on podcast the other day of uh, a guy who's a little more controversial in the firearms industry. And mm -hmm. we got a, uh, some reviews and some people were kind of talking shit. And I was like, I, I didn't respond. I don't respond to a lot of those people because that's, that's what they want. But on my side of it, I was like, you have to hear both sides of, of any argument. Just, it doesn't mean if you talk to somebody that it, it that you hundred percent agree with them, but right. let them have their side, let them voice their opinion and then let this side and be an informed person that can hear two separate arguments and then somehow figure out your own conclusion versus just being force fed a conclusion. Right. And that's assuming too, because what, what we're dealing with now too is there's not, and it goes both ways there can be so much emotion wrapped up into it that there's not a coherent like point that's being made. Like it's just emotional attacks. And you're like, well, this isn't even a debate. Like you're just yelling names at me. Like this is, I don't have to give you the time of day to have this conversation. Like there's, there's no point to this. Well, you know? we saw that. I mean, like I said, the not go crazy political. I know this isn't a political podcast, but we saw that with the whole Trump administration. That was a huge thing of like, I have friends that were, that were, anti-Trump, didn't vote for Trump. And I said, why? Well, I don't like him. Well, tell me what policy that you don't like. You know, uh, there's a lot of people I don't like that are good people or do good things. And, you know, what is it that, do you not like him because you're told not to like him or you don't like him because he did X, Y, and Z? And it's funny how, hey man, if you could tell me, if any of those friends could have told me one single policy that they disagreed with, I'd have been like, cool. 100%. I appreciate your opinion and I'm all on board that you have that opinion and you have that right. But literally the default with Trump was, I don't like him. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Uh, okay. Well, if, as long as he's doing good by the country, that's what the president's supposed to do. <laughs> so if you like his policies, cool. Would, would I go hang out with Trump? Ah, probably. But I liked his policies. I liked what he did for the military. I liked what he did for law enforcement. I liked what he did for our country. That's what the president's supposed to do. Stop being emotional about it. Like you're not going to go play golf with him later. And you don't have to worry about liking him. <laughs> yeah, and that's and people almost made it this personally. I don't like him. Well, he doesn't know you exist, so he doesn't care that you don't like him. If you could tell me one of his policies that you disagree with, then you right. got me. Now we're actually having a conversation. Yeah, instead of it just being this emotional. What was the? I sent one of them to one of my friends where it was uh, orange man or bad. What was it? Orange man mean Orange tweet man. or something like that that kept going around. And I was like, that's what you guys truly think. Like, yeah. you like him or don't like him. That's cool. But just give me a real legitimate reason versus just some nonsense. So, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, the state um, of where some of that is. Seriously. And it's not, yeah, it's only getting worse, it seems. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So I wanted to go. We're coming up on uh, a little bit of time. Before we head out here, uh, I wanted to take a little bit of time to talk about, 
you know, one of the reasons that having you on this week, um, if I don't know if you want to, if you want to do it or if I should do it, um, go for it. I'll, I'll- we're doing, uh, entering into a little bit of a partnership. Uh, you guys bringing you guys on as the first sponsor of the podcast, the Nomad Strength Show. Pretty We're excited, man. It. This is uh, this is super cool. When when Austin, our director of marketing, brought it to me, I was like, hell yeah, dude! I think uh, we've we've kind of been growing our podcast, and, and I've, I've listed yeah. a few of yours, and I was like, this is uh, we definitely align. So I, I like this thing, and I like our ability to do that. So thanks for letting us be the first. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. And then when I talked to Austin. And then when he was out here at the place, like there's just, like you said, a ton of crossover, you know, appeal between like what our, what this show does, what you guys do, and then what your show does also. But I mean, just a lot of more so what was more important to me is just like people, right? Like good values, good people. Like now I'm can be on board, you know, there's yeah. like, you, like you said before, like there's all kinds of companies that put glass and aluminum tubes, <laughs> you know, it's like you guys, like it's good people. Like uh, then now, now I'm, now I'm on board. So it was, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really pumped about it. And, uh, why don't you, I want to hear a little bit more about, cause I've listened to a few of your guys's, um, podcast also, which is, which is great. So give me a little bit more, give the audience a little bit more info about, uh, your guys's show and, and what they can expect from that. Um, yeah, the, uh, honestly, the, the reason we came up with the podcast was we're, we're not a big pusher of product that that's never been a thing for us. Um, when it comes to trade shows, when it comes to anything, like we put the scopes at the back of the booth and we want you to come talk to us. Um, it's always been a huge thing for us is you're buying, like you just said, there's a lot of companies that have glass and tubes, right. And they're all black and they're all dev turrets and they all have whatever. Right. Um, for us, it's, you want to buy my product because you like our morals, our values, what we stand for, the people, us, you're buying us, you're buying me is the reason that you're buying a ride on optic versus, you know, any one of my competitors. Um, so we kind of started brainstorming like, wait a minute, we have, we have a ton of good people that we're friends with and we're acquaintance with. And let's start something where we just get together and bullshit kind of like what we're doing right here on yours. Um, and honestly, we don't, talk about optics unless we're talking about hunting or something in the shooting world. Like it's not a, we don't push product. We don't do anything like that. There's one probably back here somewhere on the studio set. But other than that, like it's just, we realized we over the course of this company and over the course of my military and law enforcement and just being in this industry and being part of this world for my entire life, the, we have a really cool Rolodex of just cool people. And, uh, so that's kind of what the podcast is based around. Um, you know, we try to keep it half an hour, an hour time frame, and just bullshit sure. with people. Um, so it's, you never know what you're going to get. We've had people from gun advocates to Navy SEAL sniper instructors to what else we've had, you name it, man, Olympic shooters to power lifters to my buddy, Bill Kazmaier, the world's strongest man. Oh. Um, we've, we've had it all, man. So the cool thing about that is it's kind of an outlet for me to just get a bunch of my friends and just bullshit with them, but also... Yeah introduce the the world to some of our friends and what they do as well so it's kind of a cool opportunity and a cool outlet for us i said it before when it relates to when i started this i and it sounds selfish and it kind of is on some level i would guess but like i started this because i wanted to have conversations with awesome people and learn from them like right and and now that i'm kind of like giving away the trick here is like if i were just to call 
like Jack Carr, for example, and like email and be like, hey, do you just want to hop on the phone and like talk to me for an hour? He'd be like, no, who are you? I'm like, oh, hey, I got a podcast. Like, do you want to come on to promote your book? He's like, oh yeah, man, come on. And like, I'll be on there. And so it's like, it's kind of a, it's kind of a nice excuse for me to be able to talk to awesome people and like learn. And then by extension, people who listen, like now they get to hear the stories and learn and connect with those people also. Well, and I love hosting it too. Like I, I joked before we went on on uh, live where I was like, man, this is weird. I just don't have anything prepped in front of me. I don't, I don't have to do anything. I just get to hang out and answer questions. I like hosting it because I am I love just pointing people in a direction and just letting them run. It's fun yeah. to see kind of I'm pretty good at just keeping it flowing and keeping people doing and just talking. And, yeah. and it's fun to see just let people express themselves, let people kind of tell you their life stories. And it's amazing that every one of us walking around this world has some sort of story, some sort of cool experiences, something that we've all been through. And maybe it resonates with you. Maybe it doesn't, you know, you you don't like a podcast. Don't listen to it. Listen to the next one. You know, (laughs) I I get it. You know, so that's, that's kind of my goal with it is just to let people kind of talk about their stories and their life experiences. And if it resonates with somebody or they find a connection or something cool, you know, that's, that's the goal. Yeah, definitely. And like I said, I'm super pumped to be entering this thing with you guys and uh, support what you guys are doing. And this show will be like the official launch of that little uh, partnership that we're doing. So this will be, um, we're we're recording on a Thursday. I'm going to just drop this one on Monday because that'll be the easiest way to do it. So um, Brady, thank you, man. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, where is all the stuff that people can go and find out. I'm going to, they're going to hear me say it a thousand times, but from, from you now, where can everybody yeah, go? For the first stuff? time of the thousand, um, yes. right on optics.com. Um, and, and let me throw this out there too, Ross, real quick. It's, it's not just a place to shop. We have right on university, our podcasts are, we are huge about education. So don't, uh, don't think I'm trying to send people to right on optics to go buy an optic. I mean, if you're there, feel free, but, right. um, the, it's education. Find dealers. We have a great dealer locator on there. Find a local dealer. Go check out the glass in person. Um, but for us, it's about educating. So we want people to go there. We have a great right on university. We're adding episodes every week now, I think. So mm-hmm. um, and everything just mounting and MOA, MRAD and you name it. So go in there, poke around, um, drop us questions, comments. You can find links to our social media, to our podcast, everything in there. So Awesome. Well, I've got a, uh, I believe a one primal on the way. And so I'm pumped to test it out and see how it goes in the next couple of months. So I'll be reporting my, my findings immediately back. So, uh, well, thank you again, man, for making the time. I appreciate it. And we'll be talking a lot more soon. So thanks for making the time. Cool. Thanks for having me and, uh, excited for this partnership, man. Thank you. Mm-hmm.